Welcome back to another episode of Stimulate Your Mind, proudly presented to Welcome you by Welcome back to another LOS. episode of Stimulate Your Mind. I'm your host, Ali A, with my co-host, Ali A as well. Thank you. <laughs> and with us today is PhD student in political economy, Jay Therapel. How are you, Jay? I'm good, I'm good. Thanks That's for good. having me on. Thank you for joining us. And you can find his work on the website, theorientaldespot.com. That's right. That correct. Now, the Yemen conflict. Yes. Since March 2015, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have led a coalition of states in Yemen against Houthi forces that took over Yemen's capital, Sana'a, in September 2014. Now, the armed conflict in Yemen has resulted in the largest humanitarian crisis in, in the world, which was actually stated by UNICEF themselves. That's right. Um, and parties to the conflict have killed and injured thousands of Yemeni civilians. According to the Yemen Data Project, more than 17,500 civilians were killed and injured since 2015. And a quarter of all civilians killed in air raids were women and children. More than 20 million, in, more than 20 million people in Yemen are experiencing food, food insecurity, and 10 million of them are at risk of famine. So this coalition that has been led against Yemen, we know that's according to the internet, at, at the very least, is by Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Mm. Are there any other countries that... Um, Parties to this to this conflict. Last time I counted, twenty-two countries. Twenty-two countries. Because yeah. you've got uh, you've got the Anglo-American powers, so Britain, uh, United States, Australia. These countries are selling weapons, right? And they're also involved in imposing the naval blockade to choke off uh, Yemen from from outside trade, which prevents Yemen from importing food. I mean, prior to the conflict, Yemen imported something like ninety percent of its food. And so when you impose that blockade, that's, that's what's causing the mass starvation. That's what's causing anywhere between 50 to 60% of the population to, to, to be currently starving, right? So by the end of the conflict, this, uh, the death toll could be in the millions as a consequence. But yeah, as, as for, the, for the number of countries, 22 to 26 from what I remember, right? 22. And that's like, you've got countries like, you know, Bosnia, Malaysia, Sudan, um, uh, the Gulf states, all of them, except for Oman, mm. um, honorable exception, and also except for Qatar because they pulled out in 2017. But it's been a huge business because Saudi Arabia has got the money and they're willing to pay for the most uh, high-tech, sophisticated gadgets and weapons of death um, in order to, to protect the lives of the mercenaries that they've sent to Yemen. So you're mentioning 22 to 26 countries, yet... When you go online, social media, on the internet, or wherever you look, there hasn't been any international outrage yeah. as to what's happening. Yes, the UNICEF has has um, named it as a like the largest humanitarian crisis to ever happen, but apart from that, it's just words on a paper. Yeah, I think there's a reason for that. Um, one of the reasons is because uh, a large chunk of the Muslim world relies on remittances from the Gulf states. So even like a, even the, the part of India that I'm from, Kerala, right, it relies on remittances from countries like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, the UAE especially. And so if you have this dependence on these Gulf countries, then you're less likely to speak out against the crimes that they commit, right? So if you look at the invasion of Iraq, right, a lot of countries were against it, right? Turkey was against it. Um, and, and because Turkey has this, uh, this position of influence, right, within the Muslim world, particularly the Sunni Muslim world, um, a lot of people were 
found it very easy to take take up opposition to the the invasion of Iraq. But when it comes to the to the war against Yemen, um, that's the that's the issue that we find. Right, there's a financial disincentive for speaking out against the conflict. Um, not only that, if you look at the uh, the UN resolution. Uh, UN Resolution 2216 that was passed in, in 2015. This is what essentially green-lighted the war against Yemen. Now, this UN resolution recognizes the Saudi coalition as acting on behalf of what they call the legitimate government of Yemen. Mm. Um, and so this is a problem, right? Because the so-called legitimate government of Yemen is overwhelmingly dominated by foreigners, right? 84% of the Saudi-led coalition's forces are not Yemeni. Right, they're foreign mercenaries. You got a hundred thousand to one hundred fifty thousand Saudi mercenaries, and they themselves are not Saudi. They're drawing on mercenaries from all over the world. So you look at the Muslim world in particular. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of people who really have no hope. Right, and so what do the what do the Saudis do? They go to these countries. They recruit them to become mercenaries. And so there's also a financial incentive there, right? Mm. Like, unfortunately, um, uh, the, the, these people are being paid, right? And so that's their only motivation. And so they need to be protected when they go out into the battlefield to, to, to fight against the Yemeni national resistance. And that's when the, the, the high-tech gadgetry of the Anglo-American countries come in to provide them with the, the, the armored personnel carriers and vehicles and you know special i don't know all of the the military mm. tech right but all of that in order to to make it as as lucrative as possible to to attract mercenaries so 84 percent of the of the saudi the the saudi side is made up of foreigners whereas the local indigenous yemeni national resistance right is 100 percent indigenous but what does the media say the media says that this 100 percent indigenous national resistance movement they're iranian-backed proxies mm. right and that's the the injustice of this situation. A lot of people think that it's a that it's a um, that it's an international conflict involving multiple countries. So if you say, well, what about the Saudis, right? Like, look at what they're doing. They're committing a genocide in Yemen. A lot of people say, oh, well, what about Iran? Mm. I say, what about Iran? What are they doing exactly? Yeah. Like recently, two days ago, uh, the Yemeni um, uh, uh, health ministry. They, they were thanking two countries in particular for helping them out with medical assistance, Iran and Oman, right? So at least Iran is, is trying to alleviate the situation by sending over medical assistance. What's Saudi Arabia doing? They're starving the country. Mm. Like, so this idea that you can put an equal sign between Iran and Saudi Arabia makes no sense. One side is completely indigenous. That's the Yemeni national resistance, the Houthis, as you refer to them. Ansarullah is their real name. Yep. And then on the other side, you've got the Saudi backed mercenaries and they are 84 percent foreign so what are the similarities and differences between the syrian revolution <coughs> and the yemeni revolution led by the ansarullah it's a very good question uh well usually the way this uh this particular question gets framed is in in a far more hostile manner people yeah. say you know you support the yemeni revolution the houthi revolution but you don't support the syrian revolution right why is that it's a very good question. The difference is that in the case of Yemen, Ansarullah actually never tried to take up arms against the Yemeni state. The Yemeni state took up arms against them. Right. So this begins, if you go back to 1994, this is when Ansarullah was founded. Its original incarnation was an organization called the Believing Youth, right? Shabab al-Mu'mineen. Yep. And uh, this was founded by uh, Hussein al-Houthi. That's the original uh, founder of the Houthis. 
Now, all they wanted to do was was enter politics, right? They were not taking up arms against this, uh, taking up arms against the the, the Yemeni government, um, and they were trying to revive Zaidi ideology, right? And then come two thousand and four, the United States has invaded and occupied Iraq. Um, there's pressure on the Yemeni government to crack down on Ansarullah. Ansarullah are acting within the boundaries of the constitution. This has to be made abundantly clear. It has to be re- repeated over and over again. They are not rebels in the sense that they just decided one day, let's take up arms against the Yemeni state. It's because the United States considered them to be a threat and because Saudi Arabia perceived them to be a threat also that um, they that they decided to go to the mountains in Sada and murder the leader of the Houthis, that is Hussein al-Houthi in 2004. They went there, they, put, they, 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 they chased his family into a cave, then they doused the cave, they filled the cave with petrol and set it on fire. It was a massacre. Him and 20 of his family members were murdered, right? Now, you compare that to the Syrian conflict, right? In Syria, the war is driven by the attempt to overthrow the Syrian state, Right? So it's actually driven by this attempt to take up arms against the government, right? Then, then you have to ask the question, has this, have these attempts been popular with the Syrian people? I would argue no, right? I mean, even the FSA fighters back in 2013, 2012 rather, when they were being interviewed by Time magazine, they would say, look, 70% of the people support the government. They were honest enough to admit that, right? Um, and the other thing is that a country like Syria, there's no way that the government would still be there to, uh, if, if they didn't have the support from, from like a critical percentage of the population, right? So that's the thing. It's a, it's a conscript army. Like the people in the Syrian army, they don't want to be there. They don't want to be fighting, right? They want to be at home. They want to be with their kids. They, they want to return to normal civilian life. They're forced in a situation where they have to fight because if they don't, their country is going to be over, overrun. By who? I mean, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, Jaysh al-Islam, Ahrar al-Sham, all of these groups, right, that are backed by Turkey. And they're increasingly dominated by foreigners. So here is the similarity, right? In Syria, the forces waging war against the state now, and ever since I'd say about 2013, have been dominated by foreigners, right? They've got foreign commanders, they've got foreign, what they call mujahideen, coming in from all of these countries, right? Um, Whereas in Yemen... The overwhelmingly foreign side is referred to as the legitimate government of Yemen, mm. right? But if you look at the side that has the support of the indigenous population, the side that's relatively more indigenous, in Syria, it's the government of Bashar al-Assad, um, and in Yemen, it's the so-called Houthi rebels. So knowing that um, there's been a massive blockade imposed on, on Yemen and the starvation, the drought that they're going through, COVID-19... How are they still, Ansarullah, I mean, mm. how are they still able to take up arms and defend themselves when there's, there's nothing coming in to the country? I ask, I ask myself this question all the time. Like, how are they, how are they able to do this, right? I think it just, I think it just comes down to their, their willingness to fight and resist. I remember watching this one speech by uh, Sayyid Abdel Malik al-Houthi. He's the leader of Ansarullah today. And he said... It's more honorable to be scattered into the wind, to be crushed to dust, than to ever submit to these cowards, right? Referring to Saudi Arabia, right? Now, sometimes you see a level of political will, right, in in struggles out there that you just cannot comprehend, and I just have to put it down to that. So it's just put it down to a miracle. I guess so. I guess so, (laughs) yeah. 
Are the Yemenis are a tough people. I mean, this is not the first time that they've had to fight off foreign conquerors, right? I mean, really, I'd say that this uh, period in Yemen's history, where they find themselves, um, you know, fighting all of these these foreigners that are just coming in to 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 conquer them and occupy their land, it begins with the Ottomans, right? So in the 16th century, uh, the Portuguese they start to dominate the, the the trading networks of the Indian Ocean. They start to monopolize all of the ports on the Indian Ocean, right? So the first place that the Portuguese went to was Kerala. Kerala is my homeland, right? I was born there. And over time, they started, over the course of the, the 15th century, they started to take over all of the, the, um, the ports, right, in the Indian Ocean. And the Ottomans perceived this to be a threat, right? And so they invaded Yemen. But they didn't just invade Yemen to protect the the ports from from the Portuguese they also uh, uh, took all of the wealth right so Yemen is is wealthy historically because of the trade right so I was reading um, uh, the other day uh, Najil Balaga right and I was I downloaded the PDF right because then you can control F and do keyword searches right, right. so I haven't read the entire thing right <laughs> but it, it points out that part of the reason why uh, Yemen was was able to be unified by the Himyarite dynasty in the in the fourth century, is because the Himyarites had access to the the um, the Indian Ocean trade, and because they had um, uh, because of naval technologies back then, they found it um, easier to to transport goods from India from Kerala where I'm from right from Kerala to Yemen right, and because of this the trade picked up, the Himyarites became wealthy and they were able to conquer all of the surrounding kingdoms and then unify Yemen right. So the, the naval position that Yemen has is extremely important. Like a large percentage, I don't know exactly, right? I think it's like a third of the world's oil goes through the Bab al-Mandeb Strait. Mm. And so Saudi Arabia ships a lot of its oil through that narrow strait. So the question that they're asking is what happens if Yemen actually becomes an independent country? And then they're able to exploit their own natural resources and become wealthy, just as wealthy as, for example, the UAE. Imagine that. Imagine a country like Yemen with a revolutionary leader, right? With a revolutionary ideology, right? Like a, a mix of like, let's say, socialism and like, you know, revolutionary Shiism, right? Imagine if they come to power and they develop a strong navy. Do you think Saudi Arabia would be able to launch these proxy wars, right, against Syria and Iraq the way that they do. Do you think, do you think they'd be able to get away with supporting, um, supporting terrorism all across the region? I don't think they would because a strong Yemen would be able to say, you can't ship your oil anymore. If you keep bullying countries in this way, we're not going to allow you to do that. And so there's been a concerted effort to keep Yemen poor. I think that's what's fundamentally driving the conflict. So... <clears throat> How has this conflict shown the lack of autonomy in the Saudi political leadership? Ooh. Well, I think there's two things here, right? So, yes, Saudi Arabia, if you look at its history, um, it's, it's, it's been propped up by the British, right? So after the, the, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire after the First World War, the British had to find uh, – we're looking for allies, right, in the Arab world – and so the reason they went to the Saudis is because, according to Winston Churchill, it's because of their unfailing loyalty to us. This is what Winston Churchill said, right? He said, look, they're brutal. They, they believe in conquering their enemies and making slaves out of their wives and children. But I like this guy because he's loyal to me, right? Mm. And that's what the British liked about the Saudis. So if you look at Saudi Arabia, right, like, first of all, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an artificial state, right? 
Um, Saudi Arabia, the, the, the regime originates in the Nejd, as you know, right? Riyadh is in the Nejd. Now, historically, the Nejd did not control Hejaz, right? Hejaz was a part of the Ottoman Empire. And historically, they didn't control uh, the provinces of Baha, Asir, Jizan, and Najran either. These are the, the, the southern four provinces of Saudi Arabia. Historically, they are Yemeni, right? Historically, they're Zaidi as well. So it's illegal, for example, in those areas to commemorate Ashura, right? You can go to jail. You can be executed for that, right? Like there's 16-year-olds in the eastern provinces of Saudi Arabia who are facing the death penalty for protesting, right? Now that's a level of oppression that you don't see in other countries in the Muslim world, right? But, you know, they've got oil and they're loyal to the United States. So, yeah, I think uh, there's there's definitely um, uh, the, the, the US-British factor here, right? That they, in large part, determine Saudi policy. So, for example, Saudi Arabia had one king who was relatively independent, King Faisal, right? Yep. He was assassinated, and what happened, right? They, he, he ended up being replaced by people who are far more loyal to the United States. So, yeah, I get what you're saying. You're completely right. But at the same time, Saudi Arabia does have its own interests because Yemen is their source of cheap labor, mm. right? Like all of, these, um, all of these construction workers that they have in Saudi Arabia, right? I mean, they have, they have you know, uh, impoverished workers from all over the world, right? But a lot of them do come from Yemen, Right, and they want to keep Yemen that way. They want to keep Yemen poor, and they know that if they don't have their foot on the necks of the Yemeni people, Yemen will become a prosperous, self-defining, revolutionary nation. So, how would you characterize the overall agenda of the United States in the Yemen conflict? Uh, I think part of it is because the the arms industry um, has weapons that need to be sold. And so they see Saudi Arabia as an important customer. Um, but overall, the, the U.S. strategy, I think, is governed by the petrodollar. So ever since 1975, 76, let's say, the U.S. dollar has been backed unofficially by oil. Because in 1971, they got off the gold standard, right? So if your currency is no longer backed by gold, because they couldn't maintain the gold standard, they had to back it by something else. So that's when they cut the deal with the OPEC states, right? And they said, look, you sell your oil in dollars and then invest the proceeds in our banking system, right? And that's been kind of, uh, that's been underwriting the American banking system ever since then. It's allowed the US to run persistent trade deficits. So the United States imports way more than they export as they've done over time. And this is just, these trade deficits have just been growing, right? Like, like it's just been increasing since 1976, so this is a U.S. interest. They have to keep the region subjugated. They have to ensure that their client states, like Saudi Arabia, run the show, right? Because if they don't and other countries are able to rise up, like Iran or Yemen, then it can undermine their, their balance of power in the region. And with regard to the Yemeni conflict, is, there are obviously main heads in this of the 22 to 26 countries yeah. that are part of parties to it. Which maybe five countries have the biggest influence on this on this conflict? It's a good question. I'd say uh, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, United States, Britain, and Israel. Is that does that come back to the the fact that they embed together with the like the export and import of of oil? 
Yeah, it's partially that. Um, I mean, Israel has its own interest, right? Because it's the most unpopular state in the region, if not the world, right? Because yeah. of the way it was founded, right? Like Definitely. literally went there and then stole a fully furnished country, right? Like not many countries, not many, not many settler colonial regimes are, are, are created in that way, right? Like imagine going to a piece of territory and saying, look, my ancestors lived here 2,000 years ago, right? And then stealing it. And then having to lie to the entire population and concoct a story about why you're there. I mean, obviously, the Yemenis don't recognize the legitimacy of that because they're proud Arab nationalists. They're not selling out the Arab nationalist cause like certain other regimes, right? Yeah. Um, other regimes that choose to fight against Iraq and fight against Syria and spend billions of dollars supporting terrorism against their fellow Arabs, their fellow Muslims, when they could have used that to support their, their you know, fellow Palestinians, right? So that's like a major factor as well, right? I mean, Israel does not want to see another revolutionary uh, government emerge in the region. Definitely. And how does the war in Yemen differ from the other Arab Spring movements? Well, Yemen was supposed to go down the, the road of the Arab Spring, right? Because the Arab Spring in 2011, part of it was um, this, uh, this push by Turkey and Qatar to bring Muslim Brotherhood governments to power in, in the Arab republics, only the Arab republics, not the Arab monarchies, right? The Arab monarchies, you can't have revolutions there, right? You try and rise up against any government, you're dead, right? Yeah. So, so, yeah, that's what they tried to do, right? Tunisia, Egypt, uh, Libya, Syria. These are all republics. That's what they have in common. Yemen as well, right? These are republics. And so... The push was for Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, political parties to come to power in these countries. And in Yemen, that faction is the Islam Party, right? So in 2011, there were protests against the government that were attended by all the major opposition factions, right? So Ansarullah was there. They were protesting against the government. The Islahis were there. That's the Muslim Brotherhood in Yemen. And also the Southern Movement, right? And also some socialist groups as well. And they're all against the government for reasons that are, that are fair enough, right? Corruption is a major issue, right? Yemenis for a long across the political spectrum realize that there is a problem with the the elites in their country taking money out of the country and putting it where in Saudi Arabia, right? Because Saudi Arabia has patronage networks in the country, right? Where they say, "Look, we will back you, we will support your political campa campaigns, we'll help keep you in power, and in exchange you have to be economically loyal to us," right? And so a lot of Yemenis realize that this is a problem, but the script was that ye that in Yemen, the Muslim Brotherhood affiliated factions will would put up pull off like a kind of regime change, right? So they'd get rid of Ali Abdullah Saleh, and he'd be replaced by like a more Muslim Brotherhood friendly government, right? But that didn't happen. Instead, the government that came to power, which was backed by the Muslim Brotherhood and which the United States supported. This is the government of uh, President Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi. He came to power after the Arab Spring in 2011, right? So he comes to power and <laughs> he, he's elected in an election where it's only his name on the ballot, right? The United States says that this is a legitimate election, yep. right? No problems there. So at the same time, they're crying about the Syrian elections and saying, oh, you know, the, Syria is a dictatorship, et cetera, et cetera. Well, hang on. In 2014, Syria had a presidential election 
where there were three candidates on the ballot, right? Because they changed their entire constitutional framework so that they could have a multi-candidate presidential election. Before that, the way that, they, that it worked in Syria is that you could vote yes or no for the incumbent president, but you couldn't choose a different candidate. So they changed the constitution. In Yemen, they've got one guy on the ballot paper, right? And this is the guy that, that Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the United States, all the big powers in the region, they want, like, they want this guy to be in power. That's Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi. But he ends up doing things that are extremely unpopular, right? So, for example, he slashes the subsidies on fuel. This causes fuel prices to rise by 195%, right? And this is, this is a devastating blow to the, to the Yemeni working class because that's, like, that's their bread, you know? Like when you raise the price of fuel, you raise the price of everything, that's right? right? And then he, he said that he wanted to, to divide the country into six federal units, right? Now, this was a, a very clever ploy by the Saudis to divide Yemen into rich and poor regions, right? That's what Ansarullah said. They said, this is an attempt by Saudi Arabia to divide Yemen into resource-rich areas and resource-poor areas. The problem is that the resource-poor areas have 80% of the population mm. and the resource-rich areas have like 18% of the population. Even that's being generous because the majority of that 18% are located in the, the port city of Aden, Right. Like, you know, the Hadramaut coast, right? Yep. That's the coastline that faces the Indian Ocean, right? So, um, so yeah, the reason the Saudis wanted this is because Hadramaut, which has, like, all of the natural resources in a small population, the Saudis want to run pipelines through there. The Saudis want that oil for themselves, as if they don't have enough oil, right? They yeah. want Yemen's oil, and this is, like, the poorest Arab country, right? So this was extremely unpopular with the Yemeni people. This is not a Sunni Shia issue. Right? Let's make this very, very clear. The media tries to obfuscate. They try and say, oh, it's a Sunni-Shia conflict. You've got Iran, they're backing the Shiites. You've got Saudi Arabia, they're backing the Sunnis, right? But this is an issue of Yemen's national interests, right? Neither Zaydis nor um, Sunnis, right, in Yemen would benefit from the federalization of the country, right, to weaken it and divide it in this way. And yet that's how the media presents it. I mean, the Zaydis themselves, mind you, like the Zaydis are the... They're the Sunnis of the Shia and the Shia of the Sunnis, yeah. right? So there is no reason for, for example, a Salafi, right? Someone who, you know, respects Ibn Taymiyyah, for example, to disrespect the Zaydis. Because there's there's no reason for them to... Because the Zaydis say, look, we, we have nothing against Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman. We've got nothing against them. We just, we reserve our preference for Ali ibn Abi Talib, right? Mm. But they accept the legitimacy of the first three caliphs, right? So they are completely non-offensive to, to every single school of, of Sunni Islam, right? And so this is not a Sunni Shia issue at all, right? This is about Yemen's national interest being violated by Saudi Arabia. So how does this current conflict, <clears throat> how does the current conflict relate to past conflicts or historical conflicts in Yemen? In Yemen, hmm. You know, just off the, the previous thing that I was mentioning, so uh, back, in, uh, back in 1962, uh, there was a Republican coup that yep. took power in Yemen, right? And this is like a time when Yemen was divided between North and South. So I might actually just go through the history of that. So uh, before, this, before the First World War, Yemen was divided between two empires, okay? So the Ottoman Empire controlled North Yemen. The British controlled South Yemen. So... 
After the First World War, the plan was that the Saudis would take control of North Yemen and the British would take control of South Yemen, right? That was supposed to be the plan. It was going to be a nice little setup. And the British, were, the, the Saudis were comfortable with that because they trust the British. The British put them in power, you know, and that didn't happen. The reason that didn't happen is because of the, the resistance of the Yemenis back then, right? Mm. So we talk about the resistance of the Yemenis today to Saudis. This, is, this happened back then, right? So just to answer your question. So in 1934... The Saudis, uh, they invade uh, North Yemen, but they're stopped. Um, um, they're, they're stopped dead in their tracks by the Imam of Yemen, right? So Imam Yahya Hamid al-Din, very famous figure, figure in Yemen, widely respected. Um, and that's because he led the Yemenis in their, in their resistance against the Saudis. If it wasn't for Imam Yahya Hamid al-Din, the northern part of Yemen would be controlled by Saudi Arabia, right? The reason... The, the borders that exist today between Saudi Arabia and, and Yemen are the borders that, 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 that had to be fought for by the Yemenis themselves. That's where the, the Yemenis stopped the Saudis back then in 1934, right? So, uh, I mean, they, they weren't strong enough. I mean, the Yemenis, uh, the Yemenis did not have the, the backing of the British. The Saudis were able to, to take the four territories of Yemen Baha, Asir, Jizan, and Najran that I mentioned before because they had British backing, yeah. right? So, yeah, this is a conflict that just repeats itself. So you mentioned before that it's not a Sunni-Shia issue. Yeah. Would it ever be categorized as, as a religious issue? Maybe not between two sects, but as, as a religious issue between the Yemenis and the Saudis? In a sense, yeah, um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it in terms of Sunni and Shia. So if you look at... Um, if you look at Wahhabism, if you look at Salafism, um, uh, if you look at their scholars, right? So, for example, Ahmad ibn Hanbal, Ghazali, ibn Taymiyyah, they all say this one thing, right? And, and they've all quoted it and paraphrased different versions of pretty much the same thing, which is that it's, it's better to live under it's, – it's 60 years under an oppressive tyrant is preferable to one night of anarchy, right? They all say roughly the same thing. And that's a kind of – um, geopolitical take, I guess, that Saudi Arabia would prefer, right? Because it's a way of cementing their power. So in countries where they call the shots and they support the, the political status quo, they encourage quietism, right? They encourage Muslims to put up with oppressive rulers, right? Um, now, of course, in a country like Syria, right, where they don't like the government for other reasons because it's allied with Iran, Iraq, because of Saudi Arabia's now not so secret relationship with Israel, right? Mm. It's, it's basically an open yeah, alliance yeah. these days, right? Um, there, they encourage you know people you should rise up against the government, right? Even if the people rising up against the government are majority foreigners, right? So I think that's the main issue here, right? You've got Wahhabism, which uh, which historically has encouraged um, you know deference towards authority, respect for the status quo, even if it's corrupt and unjust. And then on the other hand, you've got Zaydism, right? And one of their core tenets is khuruj, that Muslims have an obligation to rebel against corrupt and unjust rulers. So polar opposites, right? Yeah, this isn't a Sunni-Shia thing. So how does the issue of or the conflict in Yemen relate to the forced colonization of Palestine? Hmm. That's a good question. I guess like uh, uh, the, the similarity here is that uh, Yemen is Yemen is to Saudi Arabia what Palestine is to Israel. So like I mentioned before, 
You know how I mentioned there's those four provinces of, of Yemen that are occupied by Saudi Arabia, yeah. right? That's basically like the West Bank and Gaza for the Yemenis, right? Because the the indigenous population of Yemenis, right, um, they, they've had their rights stripped from them. They can't practice their own religion. They have to stay quiet and they have to allow their territories to be taken over by people that Saudi Arabia bring in from the outside because they want to change the demographics of the region, right? I mean, this is usually what happens when you have an unjust occupation and you've got an indigenous population that don't accept the, the occupation, right? Yeah. The occupation tries to bring in people from outside. It's like with, with Palestine, right? What happened? I mean, uh, you have lots of Europeans coming in to displace the local Palestinian population. So similarly, in, in uh, what I call northern Yemen or Saudi-occupied Yemen, they did exactly the same thing. So there are similarities there. So it's, it's, the, it's the Palestine that nobody talks about. And what, um, what can you say about the, the Yemeni blockade at the moment? What, what are the, the main points of the Yemeni blockade and what is it trying to achieve? It's trying to starve the Yemenis into submission. It's, it's just that simple. They know that they can't win a fair fight with the Yemenis, right? Um, like if they were to – if the Saudis were to if, – if the Saudis were to simply back the, the forces, like if, they, if the Saudis were simply to back the Yemenis on the ground who support them and they have an alliance with, they would lose in like they, – they just lose the war, right? There's no way they could win the war that way because they don't have enough Yemenis on the ground who, who – have their support. You got to remember that when people talk about the Houthi takeover of Sana'a in in September 2014, um, this was a this was like one of the most bloodless revolutions you'll ever see, right? Like barely anyone died. I mean, there were a few clashes, like a hundred people died or something like that, right? But it's not like in Syria where there's been this attempt to overthrow the state, which has resulted in like tens of thousands of people. Being, what am I saying? Like 400,000 dead, right? Yeah. I mean, 100,000 of that are Syrian army soldiers, mind you, right? That part isn't ever mentioned. But, um, but in Yemen, uh, the Ansarullah, they were able to take over Sana'a because they had the support of the Yemeni interior ministry. They had the support of the Yemeni army. There were hundreds of thousands of people in the streets waving Ansarullah placards, right? And so they had the mass support of the Yemeni people, right? Um yeah, what's what's been the human cost so far in Yemen? You know, it's hard to calculate because the the death toll that they that they give you in the media is something like a hundred thousand eighty to a hundred thousand, but they also mention that thirteen million people are starving, right? And so, really, we have to wait for a census to be done, and that can only be done after the war. So, I predict that at the end of this war, we will find out that the total death toll is probably two, three million, something like that. Wow! So half the half the Jewish Holocaust. Mm. Can you comment on the the Ansarullah strike on Aramco in Saudi Arabia? Right, yeah. I mean, this is uh, <laughs> the reason why this is impressive is because the the Yemenis are blockaded, right? So they're not getting they're not getting weapons from anyone. People keep talking about, oh, the, the Houthis are getting weapons from Iran. They're getting weapons from Iran. I'm like, how? They're, they're barely getting food into the country. And every single food shipment that comes, right? They they inspect it thoroughly to the point where the food is rotting. Um, and, and just sitting on the ports, right? It's like right next to the ports, the Saudis aren't allowing it to, to, to reach the starving Yemeni people because they say, oh, it's full of weapons, right? Mm. Even, after they've in, even after they've inspected it and revealed that there's no weapons there whatsoever, right? 
And so, okay, the Yemenis are not getting weapons from the Iranians, right? So what have they done? They're reverse engineering drones, right, themselves, right? Wow. So what's maybe what's happened is that they've got a few, you know, maybe personnel from outside, you know, maybe from Lebanon, maybe from Iran, I don't know, right? Mm. And these people come with expertise, they come with knowledge, they come with blueprints, designs, right? And they've been, because of Yemeni ingenuity and and uh, whatever solidarity they get from overseas, they've managed to reverse engineer the drones that last year in September took out the, the facility in Upkeik, right? And then it caused uh, uh, oil prices to <laughs> yeah. skyrocket briefly to the point where the Americans had to release their own strategic reserves of oil in order to keep the price stable. So if they aren't receiving weapons from outside Yemen, um, do you think it's more it's coming down to more the revolutionary mindset that you mentioned early, earlier that's that's allowing them to push this far and make like an attack that big? Yeah, it has to be. It has to be. I mean, Yemenis are Yemenis know that they're true place in the world is not reflected by by where they are in the world today, right? I mean, Yemen historically is a rich, prosperous country, right? I mean, we're talking about the the, the land of the Queen of Sheba, right? Mm. We're talking about, um, you know, the one of the first nations to convert to Islam, right? Um, the, the story goes that first the Prophet Muhammad sent uh, Khalid ibn al-Walid to Yemen, right, to convert the people, but he was unsuccessful after being there for a few months. And then Ali ibn Abi Talib was sent, and he was he managed to convert the entire Yemeni nation, right? Like Bani Hamdan, right? One of the largest tribes in Yemen. Anyone here with the surname Hamdan? No, no okay. Well, Hamdan's <laughs> a common name, right? Like Lebanon That's and other right. Arab yeah, countries, right? It's Yemeni, right? Mm. Like the Yemenis played a major role in the development of early Islam, right? And so the Yemenis know their place in history, mm. right? And so they're not going to put up with being treated like dirt, right? They know that eventually they have to put up a struggle. They have to put up a fight if they're to retain and regain their rightful place in the world. I think that's what's driving them. The other thing is Yemeni army stockpiles, right? Like it's not foreign weapons. It's not Iranian weapons. It's not coming from outer space, right? It's just Yemeni army stockpiles. It's because they have the Ansarullah movement is fighting alongside, shoulder to shoulder with the Yemeni army, right? Mm-hmm. They're not rebelling against the Yemeni army, which is what you think when you hear that they're they're rebelling against the Yemeni government, right? The Yemeni government is basically this one guy, Abdul Rahman Hadi. And you know what? Abdul Rahman Hadi is in is under house arrest in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> so Saudi Arabia is bombing and starving a country on behalf of someone that they've placed under house arrest. That would be like Russia placing Bashar al-Assad under house arrest in Moscow and saying we're acting on behalf of the Syrian government. Right, that's the absurdity of the situation. The media doesn't comment on it. Mm. So there have been reports coming out of um, the Middle East, let's say, of certain um, military groups assisting the Yemenis in this fight against, let's say, Saudi Arabia yeah. and the other countries. Um, is that just hearsay, or I just don't see evidence of it? Right, like, uh, I mean, if there was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like condemn it. I mean, I think. A country that that is fighting for its right to exist, fighting for its survival, has the right to to call on foreign allies and foreign uh, uh, support and weapons, right? But I just don't see the evidence for it, right? I mean, yeah, maybe they're getting blueprints on how to reverse engineer missiles or something like that. But beyond that, I just don't, I just don't see it happening. 
Is it because it's not possible or is there is there something else at play here where they can't actually access these weapons or Well, you know, there is a theory that um the you know how we mentioned the the uh strike on the Saudi oil facility. There is an alternate theory that the strike wasn't actually it was carried out on on behalf of the Yemeni national resistance, but the drones actually came from Iraq or something like that, right? Mm. That's like another theory. I'm not too sure. The Yemeni uh national resistance government says that they did it, right? So I'll take their word for it. <laughs> I'll take their word for it. Yeah. And do you think the Ansarullah movement um, will eventually come to a point where they've succeeded in this in this revolution or do you think that they're just going to be drow- dried out by the Saudis through this blockade, through the COVID crisis, through the famine that they're facing? Like Yemen, I think the UNICEF statement of largest humanitarian crisis is just like a politically correct way to say it. Um, yeah, when it's it's a lot more than that. It's genocide. It's a genocide. We call it genocide. It, it is genocide. Um, so, will there come a point, in your opinion, um, where the Ansarullah movement will prosper? There's been like there's been moments where I, where I was hopeful that the war was going to come to a close, but I think I think this is one of those situations where the the Saudis they just know that they can keep starving the country, right? And I don't see this. I mean, there are. I, I've just I've just given up hope that it's just going to end anytime soon, right? So I think it's going to be a long struggle. But I think there's diplomatic ways in which uh, in which to alleviate the suffering. So, like I mentioned before, Iran and Oman have been thanked by the by the Yemeni National Salvation Government in Sana'a for delivering medical assistance. So hopefully, through negotiations, they can they can start to ease the blockade and food can come through, and you know. In the short term, we should be we should be hoping for the for the alleviation of those humanitarian concerns, right? So that the Yemenis can eat. <laughs> That's the most important thing. Definitely. So Nobel laureate Tawakkul Kaman has said that Saudi Arabia is legally responsible for the the crimes that the that the Arab coalition has led against Yemen. Um, has this had? Do you think that this has had any effect on the international stage? The problem is that. Saudi Arabia is acting according to international law. I know that sounds insane, right? But if you look at UN Resolution 2216, Saudi Arabia is acting on behalf of the legitimate government of Yemen and their role is to disarm the Houthi rebels. That's that's according to UN Resolution 2216. And here's the thing, I mean, people accuse me of not being critical enough of Saudi Arabia and Russia, but here I think it's entirely legitimate to be critical of those countries because they could have used their power of veto at the UN Security Council to veto that resolution. All they had to do was put their hand up and say, we veto this resolution, right? And it would not have been legal. Saudi Arabia would have then had to have, Saudi Arabia would then have had to launch an illegal invasion of Yemen, right? And it would have been declared as such. We could actually say as the Yemeni Solidarity Council, Saudi Arabia's war against Yemen is illegal, right? And so I think the way to turn this war into an illegal Saudi genocide against Yemen, right? Because, I mean, legality matters, right? It changes the framing, right? Because if the framing is Saudi Arabia acting on behalf of the legitimate government of Yemen to defeat Houthi rebels then that sounds a lot less worse than Saudi Arabia illegally invading a country, right? Yeah. And imposing mass starvation and genocide upon its population while bombing its its infrastructure and health facilities. So if we look at it as a legal issue, then 
wouldn't that make um, the illegal genocide of the Palestinian nation a legal issue as well and looked looked at as such by the international community well, or even with Palestine right I mean the only the only part of the, the Israel-Palestine conflict that's illegal from an Israeli point of view is the occupation of, of the West Bank and the siege of Gaza right the rest of that territory historic Palestine is legal as far as international law is concerned because the UN voted for the creation of Israel back in 1948 so this is the thing I mean don't don't put everything on legality, right? Mm. Just because something is legal doesn't mean it's moral. And just because something is moral doesn't mean it's legal. 100%. So as we've seen in the past five to six months, um, a bit more in some countries, the, the the pandemic or the coronavirus pandemic has basically created an, a destruction of life economically, socially, and it's a, it's a massive health issue as well. So how has this affected the Yemeni people. I think the most absurd story about coronavirus, I've seen a few uh, stories. So the first one is that, like, this is from a few months ago, the the Saudis, because, like, uh, you know, countries all over the world went into lockdown, Saudi Arabia did, the, did exactly the same thing. And so there's a large uh, labor force in Saudi Arabia, really, really poor people from all over the world, right? Somalia, India, Bangladesh, Yemen, you name it. Um, but the ones that aren't from Yemen, right, the ones that are from other countries in the world, they were made, they were kind of redundant in the situation, right? So they didn't have jobs. So what did the Saudis do? They, they gathered all of these, these poor workers and they pushed them towards the Yemeni border, right? And so it's like, well, what if these people, what if, because this is like back in March or something, right? Everyone's freaking out, you know, like this, this virus, it's growing exponentially, you know, it's like 30 times deadlier than the flu, et cetera, et cetera. And at the same time, what are the Saudis doing irresponsibly? They, they're taking, you know, a thousand people or whatever and then pushing them towards the Yemeni border and trying to push them into Yemen, right? Mm-hmm. I had a fight with a guy on Twitter like a, like a month or two ago because he was making the argument that this was the fault of the Houthis. He was saying the Houthis are the Houthis are trying to um, are trying to stop like black Africans from entering their country or trying to make them sound racist yeah, or something, yeah. right? Okay, well if you're waging a war of national like resistance, right, against a genocidal occupation, yeah, you're going to care about your borders a little bit, right? Because you don't know who's coming across the border. I mean, there's also been stories, um, <laughs> yeah, like I mean, the the kind of craziness that you see on the internet, right, just shows you that people can get away with saying all kinds of nonsense about Yemen, knowing that they're not going to face a backlash because the media, uh, the media simply isn't reporting it the way they should be. Um, but the other thing is that um, there were some reports of the Saudis. They started randomly dropping um, PPE, like protective equipment, in Sana. And then all of a sudden, like the, the, the response of the National Salvation Government, that is the Houthi government, was, was suspicion, right? They were like, well, why would the Saudis care about protecting us, giving us protective equipment when they're committing genocide against us, right? Mm. And so they seized all of these boxes, right? And then they, they tried to and, – and they were suspecting that maybe these were infected with coronavirus, coronavirus or yeah. something like that, right? But I, I, don't, I don't know what's happened about that. That's still just... It's still up in the air, I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, like, coronavirus is kind of low on the list of priorities in Yemen, right? When, <laughs> <Yeah>. you, <laughs> when you've got a starvation siege and non-stop bombing. Definitely. I think Yemen will take bullets over medicine at this stage, right? I mean, yeah, I think... They've I got, think a, they've they've got they've a massive fight on the hand, so <laughs> they'd rather 
bullets than food and I think they preferred that the entire country got coronavirus <laughs> in exchange for the war ending, right? Yeah, yeah. definitely. So, yeah. So with regards to social media, what impact can it have on like raising awareness to the to the the crimes that are happening in Yemen at the moment? Well, you know, like you I look at like you go to YouTube, right? And what's what's impressive and what gives me hope is that there are a lot of Muslim channels. So if you go to One Path, you know, that's one of them, right? I mean, not to plug them, right? Because they say a lot of things that I disagree with, right? That's putting it mildly. Um, but that just shows that, you know, if you if you put in effort like what you guys are doing, you can get your voice out there. Unfortunately, they don't talk about Yemen because of their yeah. allegiances and whatnot, right? I don't want to go too far because I don't want to, you know, danger my own safety. But like... <laughs> <laughs> But no, I mean, it, ju- it just shows that, like, because of social media, because of the democratization of the internet, because of YouTube, you can start up channels, you can start conversations. But at the same time, you have to make sure that you have other channels of communication out there, right? Mm-hmm. So, for right. example, there's a, there's a website called Shia TV, yep. right? And a lot of stuff that gets taken down on YouTube, right, because it's, you know, supporting dangerous individuals or violating community standards, you can find there. So you've got you to gotta find these alternate um, uh, forms of social media as well. And if you can break through to them, if you can develop an audience, then, yeah, you know, the next step from that point onwards is to lobby, right, is to – because the thing is, if you, if you can go to politicians and say, look, we represent – the Arab community or we represent the Muslim community or even the Shia Muslim community, which is a subset of that, then they're more likely to take you seriously than me, for example, going to them and being like, hey, um, I represent the Yemen Solidarity Committee. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm a PhD student. And then they'll be like, well, you, you know, you in what army, right? Like, who do yeah. you represent? How many votes are you going to bring to the table, right? Because that's what – here's the thing. I mean, we have to we have to recognize that – we have to learn from the Zionists, right? I mean, the Zionists in this country, I'm like in I'm just amazed at how effective they are, right? They have so many organizations. I mean, they have a lot of money, right? Yeah. Um, but I mean the 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 other Muslim organizations, right, that don't advocate for our causes, to put it that way, right? They have a lot of money as well, right? So money is another issue, right? So then there's got to be fundraising and things like that. So it's a combination, right? Social media but also alternative social media so you don't get taken down and censored because a lot of these major social media platforms, unfortunately, are uh, you know vetted and controlled by intelligence agencies. Um, but at the same time, lobbying and using community support to speak to your politicians as well. I think you can have an impact if you do those things. So um, with regard to getting taken off the internet and things like that because um, you're violating community standards, the, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> There's there's been other movements or other pushes off the internet, um, such as um, protests and, like you said, lobbying. There have been a few a few groups that have lobbied their their local MPs. Do you think that that has had any effect um, in like creating awareness at the very least? There have been some politicians who have spoken out um, in defense of Yemen. I don't know that it's as a result of lobbying. Um, there was uh, like last a few years ago, there was um, one lawyer who um, put in a freedom of information request to figure out what Australia's arms exports to Saudi Arabia were, and we found out some information from that. Um, there's also Peter Wish Wilson from the Greens. I remember one of the speeches that he gave in Parliament 
where he where he revealed that the Australian Navy was helping to train the Saudi Navy to impose the blockade. Not only that, the Australian Navy was blocking Australia's own aid to Yemen, right? Mm-hmm. So we were, he got up in Parliament and he said, so we're blocking our own aid, why are we doing that? And he, and he asked this question to Maurice Payne, right? And she's in charge of, um, I forget the ministry exactly. She's in government, in the current government. Mm. And there was no real response, right? Because Australia at that same time was, was working on its arms catalogue, right? Because Australia, unfortunately, we've gotten rid of all of our manufacturing, right? So That's I right. look at all of the stuff that you have in this room and I think, why can't Australia make these things? Why can't Australia make these microphones and, and, and you know smartphones and things like that? What we are making is weapons, right? So we have weapons catalogs. And so Saudi Arabia is a customer for us, right? And so we have to be able to balance. We have to be able to expose this, right? We have to be able to say, look, you know, you're, you know, does, we have to make the humanitarian argument essentially. And personally for you, what does um, this conflict in Yemen mean to you as, as an individual? Oh man, I mean, you know, for me, it started with um, with Syria, right? So I was uh, I was active in hands off Syria, have been since uh, 2012, 2013. and you know, before that, I I'd always uh, observed what was happening in the Middle East, right? I think the radicalizing point for me was in 2003 when the Americans invaded uh, Iraq, Iraq and also yeah. at the same time the, the second intifada was happening in Palestine, right? And Yasser Arafat had died. We didn't know back then that he was assassinated, by, mind you, right? So all of those events back in 2003, 2004, they had an influence on me, right? Because you see the injustice, right? And the thing is I was lucky because my dad encouraged me to watch the news, right? Back then, SBS was a lot better than it is today, <laughs> yeah. right? And so... They used to report on the Second Intifada. Um, they used to report on uh, the invasion of Iraq. I used to watch the watch the news with my dad. I was angry about it, right? Um, but I never thought that I really had to get involved, right? Because there were already a lot of people talking about it. Like you had the socialist groups on campus at universities. They were talking about Palestine and the occupation of Iraq a lot. So I figured, you know what? They've got it covered. I don't have to do anything about it. Come 2011, right? I realized that these socialist groups and unfortunately the Palestine Solidarity Movement and also unfortunately a lot of the Muslim community ended up taking the wrong side on Syria, right? Mm. In the sense that I understood the the, the Syrian conflict back in 2012 as like, okay, well, this is a situation in which there is an attempt to overthrow the Syrian government. So I would like those people who support the overthrow of the Syrian government to justify why. I think the onus should be on them to justify why they support the overthrow of the Syrian government. The onus is not on us to explain why the status quo should remain the way it is, right? The onus is on you, right? Because when you define your position about a conflict by what you're against rather than what you're for, then it allows you to cover up what you're for, right? So instead of saying oh, I'm in favor of al-Qaeda and Islamic State overthrowing the Syrian government, they simply said, I'm against Assad, right? So I thought this is, this is not like a, a fair way of framing the conflict, right? So that's how I got involved in Hands Off Syria. And then the war in Yemen happened, right? Um, which was, wasn't getting anywhere near as, atten- as much attention as Syria. And I thought, you know what? Like eventually I said, look, I have to, 
I have to take this responsibility as well, right? Because nobody was talking about it. I mean, there were. I mean, there are a lot of great journalists who are talking about it, don't get me wrong. But it wasn't getting the same attention as Syria. And part of the reason for that, and I think this is an important point, in Syria, the reason why that conflict got a lot of attention is because the demonization of the Syrian government was the means by which the media could manufacture consent for the overthrow of the Syrian government. Whereas in Yemen, there is no humanitarian pretext you can offer for why the Saudis are waging this war, right? And so instead of um, giving Yemen lots and lots of attention the way that they did with Syria, they have to suppress any discussion of it. So if they're suppressing discussion of Yemen, then I have to talk about it. There's enough people talking about Palestine, in my opinion. So yeah. I don't spend much time talking about Palestine, right? Yeah. Where to from here for Yemen? Where to? Um, I, I think that in the long term, in the short and medium term, it's going to be tough, man, because you've got an entire generation who are going to be stunted, like physically stunted, right? Like people who, you know, kids who would have normally grown to be five foot eight are going to be like five foot three, you know? Mm. And they're going to be skinny. They're going to have health issues because of the starvation, right? That's right. You know, so that's short to medium term is going to be tough. But I think long term, Yemen is going to be one of the most prosperous, one of the most beautiful countries in the Arab world. It's definitely worth the wait. It's going to return <laughs> to its historic glory. Is that's there any UN any, any UN boots on the ground in Yemen? There are. Um, they're like. Located mainly in like places like Hodeidah, okay. which is like where the port is. And so their job is to try and negotiate the, the entrance of food aid into Yemen. Um, but, you know, their, their role hasn't always been positive, you know. So, no, it hasn't. Yeah, so, you know, sometimes you see them leveling accusations at Ansarullah, you know, and say, saying Ansarullah is like, you know, seizing the food aid or something like that, right? Or, you know, uh, or Ansarullah is like, you know, wasting the food. And then what they don't mention is that the reason, uh, the reason why Ansarullah, um, for example, isn't distributing the food to the people is because the food's gone rotten, mm. right? Because it's been sitting there in the sweltering heat in the Arab summer, right, going rotten, going off, because the Saudis are delaying the, the, the entry of the food aid, right? And they're doing that on purpose, They've checked the – it takes them like, you know, a week or something to check the food for – check the container ships for weapons, right? And they've got metal detectors and everything like that, right? And then after that, they're still delaying the entry of that aid for months on end. So that's the unfortunate – the unfortunate role of the UN, right? Because this is a legal war, as I mentioned before. That's right. So for you personally, um, you mentioned that you're speaking out um, – against the, the crisis in Yemen, what other things are you pursuing um, to make it known to the international community that this is a genocide rather than just a legal issue? Well, the, the genocide fact I think a lot of people know, right? And, and it's just like, I mean, yeah, you can, you can spend time basically saying, hey, there's a genocide, right? But at the same time, I think it's important for the people who, are, who, are, who would be most ideologically sympathetic towards the Yemeni struggle, particularly in, in Western countries like Australia, to understand more about the Yemeni story, right? Like, how did Yemen get to this point? You know, uh, a few years ago, uh, it was revealed that um, in 1977, the president of North Yemen was assassinated by Saudi Arabia, right? This made huge... I should have mentioned this before, but this is important, right? Um, so, have you heard of President Ibrahim al-Hamdi? Yes. Yeah. 
He was the president of North Yemen. He took power in 1974 in, in a bloodless coup. And he was a modernizing Arab nationalist president. He wanted good relations with South Yemen. Um, and a lot of Yemen's infrastructural development, right, that, that still like serves the country today happened on his watch, right? He was, a, he was a very impressive leader. Saudi Arabia hated him. So it was always like an open secret that Saudi Arabia had him killed, right? And then we discovered after the Ansarullah, the, the Houthi revolution in 2014, that it's actually true. Saudi Arabia was directly responsible for his assassination. And that's when they, after his assassination, they installed, eventually installed um, Ali Abdullah Saleh. And that paved the way for 34 years in which Yemen became a vassal, essentially an impoverished vassal of Saudi Arabia. So these kind of points in history, they matter, right? Um like Syria, by comparison, uh, in the 1970s, right? Like that's when the, you know, the the corrective movement, right? Like the uh, the Baathist uh, government came to power, right? In 1973, under Hafez al-Assad, um, when they came to power, you know, Syria was uh, Syria had illiteracy. It was like there was extreme poverty. You know, like a lot of the country didn't have electricity. Now, within the space of 20 years, you know completely electrified the country. Syria, prior to the conflict in 2011, despite having one of the lowest per capita incomes, third or fourth lowest, it's like a lower to middle income country. This is mm. before the war, back in 2011, right? So even now it's even worse, right? Mm. Like Lebanon right next door as well, financial crisis, right? Money leaving the country, you name it. Um, but Syria in 2011, despite having one of the lower per capita incomes in the Arab world, when it came to education, life expectancy, the role of women, um, uh, all of these issues, Syria, all of these like social development indicators, human development indicators, Syria punched above its weight, right? It punched well above its income level. So it's got a, 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 an income level, which is like $3,000, $4,000. But in terms of life expectancy, it's like 75 and it's got a pretty decent healthcare system. Mm. It's got free education at like the university level, right? Now, this is the path that Yemen could have taken right? If President Ibrahim al-Hamdi wasn't assassinated, right? And so sometimes, you know, you look at a country and you think, you look at Syria and you think, oh, well, you know, it's not perfect. You know, the government's got problems, right? But, you know, it could be much worse. Look at Yemen, mm. right? When their Arab nationalist president was assassinated in 1977, what happened? What did it pave the way for? Thank you very much for your time, Jay. No worries. Thanks, very Jay. good having you. Thank you very much. Stimulate Your Mind is proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. For more of our podcast where we try to cover all the interesting topics happening all over the globe and also the personal stories of people right here in our own backyard. Subscribe to Stimulate Your Mind on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. See you guys in a little while.